Hello, Worcester in the world. You're listening to Public Hearing on WICN 90.5 FM, Worcester's only NPR affiliate station, or wherever you get your podcasts. Created and produced by Action by Design, our show is about addressing community challenges in ways that center equity, justice, and joy, where we use real-world examples about the nuance and intersections of this work by focusing in on my home city of Worcester, Massachusetts, the second largest city in New England. Since the beginning of our show, we have and continue to focus on listening to community voices about efforts to further equity, justice, and joy in our cities, specifically here in Worcester. While I love hosting public hearing, the fact that I am in this role has an impact on how questions are asked and stories are told. To get an even broader and diverse representation in this seat, we're excited to now announce our Pass the Mic initiative that will welcome guest hosts to our show to have conversations with others in the community about specific topics. If you are interested in learning more about becoming a guest host or are interested in supporting this initiative, please reach out to our team at publichearing at actionbydesign.co. For today's episode, I'm excited to be passing the mic to our first guest host, Raquel Castro-Corzini, to talk about Casita Cultura Latina, a Latine cultural organization that hosts the Dia de los Muertos event in Worcester, taking place on Saturday, October 29th from 11 a.m. to 4 p.m. We'll introduce the community to Raquel in this episode, and in the following episodes, Raquel will take the host seat and talk with Valerie Zalesi Windham and Michelle Salazar more about the organization, their vision, their work, and the upcoming Dio de los Muertos event coming to Worcester. This is the Public Hearing Podcast. Raquel Castro-Corzini is the Division of Youth Opportunities Director in the City of Worcester and Director of the the Casita Cultura Latina, as well as an, an experienced educator and community organizer. Raquel is a visionary who is deeply committed to fostering and creating creating more just, intentional, and equitable resources, spaces, and institutions that center young people. Welcome, Raquel. Thank you (laughs) so much for being here and being our first guest host on Public Hearing. Very cool. Very honored. Um, We always invite folks to share a little bit more about their own personal experience, professional background, social location, anything that they feel um, goes beyond the kind of quick bio that you feel is important for listeners to know. And as this episode is specifically about getting to know more about you um, for the the journey that we're going on with these these next episodes, um, please feel free to take as, as much time as you want to share a little bit more about you, yourself, and kind of what propels you in this in this work yeah no thank you um so i am an immigrant from ecuador i came to this country when i was two years old with my whole family like my whole dad's side of the family it was all Castro's in the airplane. Um, we came during a time in immigration where you could request siblings. Um, now it's like only spouses and sometimes if you have an elderly parent. Um, and so my uncle that came to this country became a citizen and then requested all of us. And so I had the privilege of coming with my family, that network, um, and also I was able to enter this country with um, documentation. So uh, I've pretty much been in Worcester my whole life, but my parents actually came to this country before that. Um, They went through Mexico, they crossed the river, um, and came and worked here for for a couple of years undocumented um, and started setting roots for our family then. Um, They returned back to Ecuador, had me, so that's before I existed, had me. 
um, and then brought us back again. Uh, so the journey that I have here um, has, for me, really uh, created a very interesting di um, dynamic with like, what does it mean to be an immigrant? What does it mean to have, you know, what does it mean to have even immigration status that has privilege and not privilege? Um, and the complexity of being somebody who immigrates to this country. And that has shaped a lot of my own identity as I find myself like I went to school, so I understand all these things about how systems work with my parents. Like they they had to like struggle through figuring out like every little thing, even with language barriers. And so um, growing up with that amount of privilege has one made me reflect and be thankful, but also think about what kind of person I want to be um, in helping you know, one arm forward and one arm back. You know, how do I take what experiences I saw my parents go through, my siblings go through, and then my own, and think about creating opportunities for others not to have it so damn hard. <laughs> yeah, well, thank you for being here and, and sharing a little bit about about that background. And, and you also, you know, have been in Worcester for a, a very long time as well, right? Mm -hmm. And and how? so what has been that, experience kind of through the lens of also being a, a Worcester resident and longtime, you know, advocate in this community? Something I always tell people about why I got into youth work is, um, you know, I grew up in Maine South. It was funny. We were just in an event there earlier today with the Maine South Business um, community. And as we were like sitting there talking about Maine South, I was like thinking about walking to school or waiting for the bus down the street. And this experience of um, when I was in, when I was entering elementary school, my, my mother went to see where the bus stop was. And I was supposed to go to a school that was nearby. And she saw the bus and, you know, my mom tells, retells the story a version of it. She's like, there were kids that were busting out of the bus. There were so many kids in the bus. Like, they were hanging out the windows. And I was like, nope, I'm not sending my daughter to that school. So because we also lived in Maine South, the school administration building was at the bottom of our street. So my mom walks down there. She doesn't speak English. She happens to be the administrator in there was Spanish speaking. My mother was able to advocate for me and had me participate in like a very new, the new magnet programs that were just happening. So I was one of the kids that got bussed out of their neighborhood um, across the city um, to a more privileged school with more resources. So I went to school on the west side. But all my friends that I, like, grew up with were still, you know, they were still, like, going to the, the, the neighborhood school. And I literally saw disparity happening live. I remember thinking about having computers in my classroom. Um, I, I, w I was part of, like, an accelerated sixth-grade program that then pathwayed me right into honors courses, which just created the same thing for college. And so while I was doing that, I remember as a kid thinking, man, my friends are like kind of lazy. Why don't they just like work harder at school like I do? And I, and at that moment, I was, I was just like, oh, I just work really hard. That's why I'm doing so well. Um, and what I, what I eventually got to a place of reflection was this idea of like, it wasn't about effort. And for a long time, that's what I was told that success was always going to be, that success was about, was about effort. And though, of course, there was effort, um, opportunity and, um, and barriers were such a big thing that was creating this, these two parallel experiences of the people in my neighborhood that were not doing what I was doing, getting into trouble or like being pathwayed into incarceration. Um, and so, 
it was it took me some time to digest that experience from myself, especially because it made me feel good to think that I was just working really hard. Um, and the interruption of that thinking has made justice and equity a priority in my life because I now realize that the my, my outcomes are all based on all these small things that happened that created a different path for me. And that was a parent that could advocate. Um, that was knowing where the school administration building was and it being walking distance from my house. So like just access to it. Um, having a parent that has the ability to do that kind of advocacy with time even. Um, and so getting into a school that allowed me to have a better quality education, um, every little thing made such a huge difference. And none of those things are, um, I think, I, I, are things I, I now take for granted. Um, I'm a mom of um, twin girls that I had when I was 16. And so the idea that I was a teen mom and still managed to get this far really tells you about like how much those those little differences make of having a two-parent household, of having um, of having the income of them working. They were, my parents were factory workers. Um, but together they could put money together. We were able to buy a house, even though it was a CDC house and we don't know, we didn't own the land, but we had our, we bought a house. And so all those things created the stability in my life that allowed me to progress, that allowed me to, um, dream, um, where one of the things I think about is most people are choosing from a very limited menu and I wasn't, I was choosing from a very, very rich menu and when we think about the idea of choice, if, the, if your choices are limited, then did you ever really choose? And I think about the idea that I got to choose so many things in my life um, that other people never had the opportunity to select. And so I always want to, uh, youth programming allows, allows me as my work to, to create choices for young people, to, to, to be able to make their their menu list more diverse and give options of positive choices because what we don't realize is how much people don't have the opportunity to select. Most people would select to do things that were going to enhance and enrich their lives. The reason they don't isn't because they don't care. It's because it's not an option. There is so much there, and, and, and I'm, I appreciate you like talking about and highlighting like agency and choice and the ways in which communities, societies, structures have systematically disallowed for choices within spaces. And it gets down to like street level neighborhood separation, right? And like that is something that you're talking about, the difference between what you witnessed from friends going to school versus you being bused into, you know, the West Side mm -hmm. and the, the disparity that existed there. And um, I, I talk a lot of on this show about the school to prison pipeline specifically because of work that I'm involved in that really looks at what are the ways in which we are pushing young people out of our educational spaces and environments of support into, you know, the carceral system, into the juvenile legal system, et cetera. And that, that, so that, that piece of, of choice and agency I think is really critical. And as we're the, the other piece that I just want to highlight for our listeners that you talked about and, didn't even necessarily say so explicitly, but I want folks to really listen to is 
acknowledgement of, of challenge and adversity while also celebration and recognition of privilege. And there's often in so many of these conversations, especially in boardrooms, and <laughs> I know you know this from your like racial equity like training work, that the discussion of privilege becomes this like, well, I still had it really difficult, right? Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. the, the, the... There's a lot of shame. A lot of shame and a lot of positioning as to like... And it, it is pride mm -hmm. at, at places, right? Like I overcame something, right? Like mm -hmm. everybody has these feelings of like, I overcame something. Mm -hmm. But to disallow for conversation around like privilege and treatment and um, like social position and physical, you know, position to resources, et cetera, does not allow us to move forward in a way that is like really asset-based and equity-based in, in how, we, how we move forward. Yeah, and like I think so sometimes as a society, because we're so... We we, you know, we think of we think in terms of either or, is that we don't even we don't consider that power isn't stagnant, right? And so, I have power in this moment, but not, I could in the same in two minutes I could change change my the context of the, the dynamic, and I could completely be the same thing that gave me power in one space can take power away from me in other spaces, and so it's not like when I'm I'm having a you know a successful day everything of that day was successful, right? And sometimes we think about it that way. We think about like, oh man, because I am the boss and I'm the decision maker, I have power, but I'm, my identity is so much more complex than that. I'm not just this one thing, right? I'm all these things at the same time. And so what you what you see in front of you, what you see from someone in front of you is barely touches who they are. And when we start to see ourselves in that very black and white thinking of like, oh, I guess I have power and privilege, it erases the rest of our lived like human experience. And the what we want to do is say like, all those things are true at the same time. And I think sometimes we struggle, and I think that's where like inclusion really matters, is we struggle to have the conversation of all those things are true at the same time, and some of them will be in conflict with each other. And so as if we can think of ourselves in a little bit more complexity and allow ourselves to see ourselves in that complexity, then we'll know, we, we know that everyone has a story of struggle. And when we can have that level of empathy of, with each other and like also own that like I had struggle, but I also had opportunities to overcome it because of these resources, then instead of feeling bad that I overcame it, I, I want to utilize that narrative to help change somebody else's outcome. Like, that's what I always, when people say to me, like, what do you really think we should do? And I'm like, use your privilege for to help others. Like, don't feel bad about it. Like, leverage that. Um, and if we spent more time thinking about ways that you can leverage privilege, then I think in general, we all, it, it's a collective win. And then there's that barrier of folks who finally, you're like, okay, Privilege acknowledged. Now leveraging and utilizing that privilege with the very present fear that when you leverage it, you might lose some of the access granted, right? And I think that that's something that I have seen in a lot of spaces, um, you know, with a lot of white folks who are like, all right, so now I want to leverage and use this power that I'm, but I'm also now so much more present in mind to know that like, if I you know, raise my voice at this event, or I try and advocate for this, systems and structures of power and, and oppressive Stifle. systems will be like, all right, we're just not going to invite you back to this table now, right? And so what, and, and like that dynamic of like 
advocacy and privilege. And I appreciate you mentioning like the fluidity of like identity and experience and that multiple things exist at once. And we'll definitely have to have you back on the show and you and I can go into a deeper dive (laughs) of that because I'm really interested from a, from a community development and like a city growth and city development perspective. I am very much guided by like queer black feminists in Mm -hmm. the concept of like emergence and Mm -hmm, the, mm -hmm. the fact that like we, if we are looking at a vision of equity and justice and joy for everyone, there isn't just one highway that we're building that leads directly to that, right? There's rivers, valleys, streams, roads, paths that all kind of diverge and intersect and work towards that goal. And there isn't one specific way to do it, right? And like this concept that community, even just one city could have a plethora of ways that we're achieving outcomes for people that are different, but achieving the outcomes that folks want, right? And living through and existing in and allowing for these like multiverses, I guess, <laughs> for lack of a better term, right? Multiverses of, of life to exist can enable and like really help us achieve these equitable and just outcomes. Yes. And but- I think it's about being in concert. Uh, you know, when I came, uh, you know, I did community work for several years and youth programs. And when I went to work for the city, I all of a sudden found myself on the out, outside of the conversation because, like, people would be like, oh, the city's here. And I'd be like, oh, that's me. Y- y'all are talking about me. I'm the city. Oh, this is an interesting dynamic change for me. Um, and one of the things that I've come across over and over again is that, like, we the work needs to happen in so many different ways because the problem is so huge. So to think that there's only, you know, it's only grassroots or to think that, you know, there's no such thing as, like, systemic change from within or to think that, for me, it's it's about, like, but are we in dialogue together because we need to, at the conversation of the group that's doing it from this place or doing it systemically or doing it by, like, mobilizing people, all of those things need to still be done. They should just be in concert with each other. And I think that it's it's always a struggle because people that show up to do this work always do it from a place of, like, this is so personal to me, which also means that potentially they're coming with the harm that this has done to them. And then you show up to tra- with traumatized people and try to organize. Like one of the things that has hurt me the most in organizing work is is running up against the tra- the trauma that is created in people that really care about it, but like fumble through it because there's so much pain that hasn't been addressed yet. And so they're doing the work with all the good intention, with lived experience. That's what we want. But if they haven't found that place and they have the privilege of healing, then that's what creates those toxic, you know, oppression Olympic conversations of like, I've had it worse than you have. You know, you're like, why are we competing on how bad we had it? But it's because people want to be seen and they want their experience to be valued because they've been invisible for so long. And so we, I see it so much with youth. But I'm like, it's not that different with adults. Like the trauma shows up in the same way and people then like step on each other's toes instead of working together because they feel like, oh, I, you know, I've been doing this longer than you or like my identity experienced more oppression so I can speak on this more than you can. And it's like, no, we both should because people in the back haven't heard it yet. <laughs> so. <laughs> and and if, if, if the harm and healing are not part of the work and integrated into the into holding space with whatever group you're participating in i feel that there can be compounding damage mm. that h- occurs in those spaces absolutely 
Then yeah. burnout happens, and they quit. Then they, 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 and then they delete their their Facebook account. And, and exactly, <laughs> and people, and people, I find, and you know, I'll I'll speak from very like personal experience of of this issue of like being in queer organizing spaces as a queer person is where I find the most struggle, to be honest, than in a lot of the other work that I do because there's a. a in, in some instances, I think it's a lack of understanding the motivations for people at the table, right? right? Like, why are people coming in? Why are people doing this work? Why are people, um, you know, you leveraging whatever background or whatever that they have to come into this space and say, like, I am, I am here, I'm ready to work, and I'm ready to do this. And people asking you, like, why? Why mm. are you here, right? Like, prove that you are here for the they right reasons. You. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> yep. And especially when you add the layer of, like, volunteering mm -hmm. your time to do this work, right? It's mm -hmm. like, I we are all coming into this space, and if we're not here with giving each other grace to say, all right, that thing that we talked about last week in this meeting that didn't end, end up happening, like, you took responsibility for it, it didn't happen. Can we talk about that instead of immediately casting blame, mm. right? Like what is, what else is showing up in our lives that disallow us to try to do some of that work, right? Absolutely. And I, I, I can't tell you how often I run into, and, and the, and for me, what the challenge is, I have to make a decision of a, how am I going to work with you? Like, well, I, I you know, I, I, now I sniff it out really quickly. I'm like, how am I going to work with you? And how am I not going to perpetuate the harm and shame that you've experienced already? Um, and so those are, that's, that's a, that's like a very specific dance of saying like I don't I don't want to continue creating the harm that has led to this behavior. I also can't have you harming me. Um, and so it is it is a very it's a very difficult dynamic because you 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 see the love that people the, the passion that they're showing up to do this right you feel it it's like usually palpable across the table um or across the zoom and <laughs> i and so you love that and you know that they're carving out space in all different areas but you also know that some of it is probably not what they were hoping would be you know the the intention and impact is not there and so i don't want to harm so that so i really have to i think about this all the time like how do i not continue harming you but also like you're not going to harm me either. And so I, I always have to figure out how I'm going to work with that. And, you know, I, my resilience community is rich. I have That's another privilege I have. And I, I have a community of people that I can strategize with, that I have conversations, that, you know, we, we share, like, how are we going to do this? And that people, that people, people don't do that enough. People don't, like, reach out into their communities and say, like, I need some thought partnership. I, I, I can't figure this out myself, and I don't have to. <laughs> that's not the only choice I have. And sometimes hearing that is like good reminder for all of us to be like, that's right. I have a whole community of experts in different ways that I can leverage. And that's what the relationship is for is when I need them, I have them. And so on the subject of partnership and, mm -hmm. and community and in our last <laughs> few minutes here, um, Tee us up for the conversations that you're going to be having with our, our upcoming guests about Casita Cultura Latina yeah. and Dia de los Muertos, <laughs> the things you got going on. Absolutely. Labors of love, you know, speaking of. Um, so this is this Casita Cultura was not necessarily something that we started off the conversation with. Um, the, the, the journey 
got us the casita. Um, we started this, you know, a group of people that just liked each other um, and were, and felt really strongly about carving out space to talk about identity and culture and our our plethora of lived experience in the Latino culture of the United States, right? Like, this is very something very the Latinos is an is an American thing. Um, it's a, it's an it's an American social um, construct, and so for all of us, we were having these conversations in our personal lives. Um, we um, we you know, raising biracial children that were experiencing Latinidad in a completely different way than we were, and we felt so excited to say like, hey, like wouldn't we love this specific celebration? Valerie, we said. I want to do Dia de los Muertos. I think that you would like to do it. I was like, yep, I like party planning. Um, and it kind of brought us together in like something that then became a bigger conversation. You know, we wanted to talk about what was happening to Latinos um, um, around COVID. We knew that we were, you know, that the impact was um, hitting Latinos so differently, that l lives were being lost and that people weren't taking the time to really think about what does that mean that so many more of them are dying. Um, and... Utilizing this platform of Dia de los Muertos was a perfect way to have a conversation to celebrate those that have passed, to honor it, but then also to really elevate the conversation of, like, there is something really wrong here and we need to disrupt it. And so it started with that, and then it's and then we loved it so much. We The, the collaboration was so beautiful that we said, I feel like other people would like to be part of this, but not just Dia de los Muertos, but in a larger conversation about Latinidad in Worcester. And that's where Casita was born. Um, and so it is It is definitely, it came out of people that cared about each other, that cared about culture, that wanted to invite other people to like, like live in that love that we were living in as we were doing this work. And so I think what we're going to be talking about is how are we, how are we all approaching this love that we have about Latino culture? Like, how are we, how are people, you know, from different identities and different walks of life that, are, that you know, landed here in the U.S. for completely different reasons? Like, how did we find love in that? And I, I hope that we share a beautiful love story with with the audience. Well, I know for myself, I'm very excited to hear your mm -hmm. conversations with our upcoming guests. And again, thank you so much for being our first guest host on on Public Hearing. Mm -hmm. And that's our time. We This flies. <laughs> um, so thank you again, awesome. thank uh, you. Raquel. Um, thank you, thank you. Uh, we've been talking with Raquel Castro-Corazzini, Director of the Division of Youth Opportunities, as well as the Director of Casita Cultura Latina, to kick off this mini-series on the organization and the upcoming Dia de los Muertos in Worcester on Saturday, October 29th which you will learn all about in upcoming episodes, as well as uh, show note links that we will add to each of these episodes. Tune in next week for Raquel's conversation with our, with our upcoming guests. Thank you for listening to Public Hearing, our podcast and radio show that airs Wednesdays at 6 p.m. on WICN 90.5 FM, Worcester's only NPR affiliate station, and can be heard wherever you listen to podcasts. Public Hearing is a show about addressing community challenges in ways that center equity, justice, and joy for every person in Worcester, Massachusetts. I'm your host, Joshua Croak. Our audio producer is Juliana DeRazio, who also made our show music. Thank you to Kelly Kujurek and Molly Gammon, who also support the production of the show. As I always say, the work continues, Worcester. Thanks for listening. <laughs> <laughs>